also ushering in this podcast that was Wallace Roney from Blue Dawn, Blue Nights, which came out in 2019, and that song is called Why Should There Be Stars? Why am I playing Wallace Roney on this podcast? Well, uh, Mr. Roney died from complications of the novel coronavirus a couple of weeks ago at the age of 59. Uh, he was quite a well-known trumpet player in the jazz world and actually learned from the great Miles Davis. So our condolences to Wallace Roney's family. Uh, we will miss him, another victim of the novel coronavirus. Hello, everyone. This is Paul Aronowitz, Health Sciences Clinical Professor of Medicine at UC Davis School of Medicine, bringing you another sort of morning report type case, uh, which I'm going to walk you through in a slightly unorthodox way for various reasons that I will explain at the end of the case. So this is a 56-year-old woman who presented to the emergency department with a two-day history of vomiting. She reported vomiting almost immediately after eating and described her emesis as non-bilious and non-bloody. These symptoms were associated with mild, central, intermittent abdominal pain, generalized weakness, and non-bloody, non-mucoid diarrhea. She described five episodes of watery stools per day. She said she had no fever, recent travel, previous similar episodes, or sick contacts. She thought that her problems were due to an infectious gastroenteritis when giving her history. The patient had a prior history of hypertension as well as a partial hysterectomy for uterine fibroids in the distant past. Medications included oral hydrochlorothiazide, 25 milligrams daily, and over-the-counter ibuprofen and acetaminophen occasionally for low back pain. She worked as a medical assistant at a local hospital. She did not consume alcohol or use illicit drugs, and she smoked five cigarettes per day for approximately the past 30 years. So, what I'm going to do is interject occasional questions into this case. So, in thinking about her diarrhea, which has been present for two days, up to five watery stools per day, along with her vomiting, what is the definition of acute diarrhea? Is it duration of diarrhea less than two days, less than seven days, less than 14 days, or less than four weeks? Again, those choices are less than two days, less than seven days, less than 14 days, or less than four weeks. So diarrhea is defined as acute when it lasts less than 14 days. So that was the third choice. This duration allows the resolution of most self-limited gastrointestinal illnesses. Conversely, diarrhea lasting more than four weeks is considered chronic and requires investigation. This patient presented with acute diarrhea with symptoms lasting two days. Continuing with the case, in the emergency department, the patient appeared comfortable and in no distress. Her heart rate was 111 beats per minute, blood pressure 107 over 65 millimeters of mercury, respiratory rate 20 breaths per minute, with an oxygen saturation of 97% on room air. Orthostatic vital signs, tragically, were not checked, but she was ambulating without obvious symptoms. If I could digress here at this point, uh, why would you not want to know what her orthostatic vital signs were um, to help guide you in your therapy in the emergency room? Having this debate currently with our emergency room attendings, <clears throat> I, it's explained to me that this is a cultural difference in how we approach the problem of orthostasis and volume depletion. Um, this is a situation where it takes about three and a half minutes to check orthostatic vital signs. If you just go from lying to standing, sitting uh, orthostatics are no longer recommended in a recent JAMA rational clinical exam 
so, uh, uh, look at um, is this patient hypovolemic. So you just have to check them with the patient, supine, stand them up for at least two to three minutes, and then recheck the pulse and blood pressure, and that is adequate to tell you whether or not they are orthostatic. Anyway, they weren't done in this case. Her temperature was 37 degrees centigrade. Uh, that's a Fahrenheit of 98.6. She was alert and oriented, and as I mentioned, in no acute distress. Uh, her oral mucus, mucosa were dry. Uh, she had no lymphadenopathy, and her cardiovascular exam revealed that she was tachycardic, but without murmurs, rubs, or gallops. Her lungs were clear to auscultation, and an abdominal exam, bowel sounds were present, uh, and she had no hepatosplenomegaly, and her abdomen was otherwise non-tender and non-distended. Uh, apparently, a rectal exam was not carried out, which also probably would have been helpful as well to tell whether she had uh, occult blood or not in her diarrhea. Neurologic exam was completely non-focal, <clears throat> and here are her initial labs. Pay careful attention. I will highlight the abnormals, however. Sodium was 134 millimoles per liter, blood urea nitrogen 58 milligrams per deciliter, and creatinine 2.7 milligrams per deciliter. Again, those are the three striking abnormalities so far. Sodium 134, slightly low, but blood urea nitrogen at 58 milligrams per deciliter, creatinine 2.7 milligrams per deciliter. Her aspartate aminotransferase, also known as the AST, was 20 units per liter. Alanine aminotransferase was also normal, uh, 24 units per liter. That's also known as the ALT. Hemoglobin, 12.2 grams per deciliter. Platelets were normal at 221,000. White blood count was 9.4, or 9,400 um, per microliter. And her urinalysis revealed uh, trace protein, trace ketones, positive leukocyte esterase, and upon urine microscopy, it was found that she had 5 to 10 white blood cells per high-power field. Trace, uh, I guess they saw trace bacteria on the microscopy, and a few squamous epithelial cells, and many hyalin casts. Okay, so um, a non-contrast computed tomography of the abdomen and pelvis uh, which it's not clear why that was done, but it was done, and it showed no abnormality uh, in terms of dilation or distension of loops of bowel or other pathology. And she had, again, uh, what was felt to be the case on physical exam, that she had no hepatosplenomegaly on the CT scan. Easy for me to say. Okay, uh, so um, which of the following characteristics of this patient's history and presentation warrant further diagnostic workup with stool studies? First choice is age greater than 50. Second choice is employment as a healthcare worker, because remember she works as a, I think in the medical transcription office at the hospital. Evidence of volume depletion, or both healthcare employment and volume depletion. So again, it's age greater than 50, or employment as a healthcare worker, or evidence of volume depletion, or both healthcare employment and volume depletion. So diagnostic stool studies are indicated in acute diarrhea when there are public health concerns, namely that the patient works in a hospital, in daycare, or as a food handler, and when the clinical presentation indicates significant volume depletion, both of which were present in this patient. She worked for a hospital, and she also had significant volume depletion. Uh, they did not know that from because the, they didn't do the orthostatic vital signs, but they did uh, have a few other pieces of data that indicated she was markedly volume depleted. So our patient's employment as a healthcare worker increases the potential of public health consequences of infectious diarrhea by exposing vulnerable populations. Additionally, the initial examination indicated volume depletion with tachycardia. Remember, her pulse was 111. Um, laboratory testing also revealed acute kidney injury with a blood urea nitrogen to creatinine 
ratio that was greater than 20 to 1. Remember, her creatinine was elevated at 2.7. The BUN was in the 50s. And she also had hyaline casts in her urine. All of these things suggesting marked volume depletion. But sadly, no orthostatics. But I'll get over it. Don't worry. I know you're all worried that I'm going to be crying about that for a long time, but which I will, but I'll do it in silence. Other features that warrant stool testing but were absent in this case include fever, bloody diarrhea, severe abdominal pain, sepsis, age over 70, immune compromised status, known or suspected inflammatory bowel disease, community outbreaks, pregnancy, and significant comorbidities. Again, let me just run through those because those are important, particularly if you're about to take like a internal medicine shelf exam or step two for a lot of our students floating out there waiting for the prometric testing centers <laughs> to announce when they're going to open. So other features that warrant stool testing that weren't present in this case include fever, bloody diarrhea, severe abdominal pain, sepsis, age over 70, immune-compromised status, known or suspected inflammatory bowel disease, community outbreaks, pregnancy, and significant comorbidities. And if you'd like to read further about that, um, these recommendations are based upon a 2016 American College of Gastroenterology Guidelines article in the American Journal of Gastroenterology, or you can check out the IDSA recommendations and guidelines, which came out in 2017, and those were published in Clinical Infectious Diseases, uh, the um, sort of um, big journal for infectious disease people. The patient was at, I say, so case continued. The patient was admitted and started on intravenous normal saline at 100 cc's per hour. So this is not a choice in um, this particular uh, thing that I'm putting out there to you guys. But um, if she's getting 100 cc's per hour of normal saline, how many liters of normal saline will she get in 24 hours? So my little trick for that is for each 40 cc's per hour she's receiving, that is approximately one liter of IV fluids. It's actually 960 cc's, but who's counting? So if you hear 80 cc's per hour, that's two liters. If you hear 120, that's three liters. So if she's getting 100 cc's per hour, she's getting about 2.5 liters in 24 hours. In a 56-year-old, that's pretty weeny rehydration uh, because her normal uh, volume requirements are somewhere around a liter to 1,400 cc's, depending whether she was febrile or not, which she wasn't at this point. So um, not very aggressive hydration, really. So over the next 12 hours, her symptoms resolved and her creatinine improved to 1.4 milligrams per deciliter. However, the next day, she developed a fever with a temperature reaching 39.2 degrees centigrade. For you Fahrenheiters out there, that's 102.6 degrees Fahrenheit. Stool studies, which I know you were sitting on the edge of your seat waiting for, for gastrointestinal pathogens including Salmonella species, Shigella, E. coli, and Clostridioides, which is the new name for Clostridium difficile, Clostridioides difficile returned negative. The patient continued to be febrile with sustained daily temperatures of 39 degrees centigrade. She reported a cough productive of thick white sputum. Intermittent tachycardia with a heart rate up to 120 beats per minute was noted. Chest radiography showed increased interstitial markings. Auscultation of the lungs revealed bilateral cracker, cr crackers, crackles. Um, I like the way it's reported that she had the chest radiography first before the auscultation of the lungs. As you all know, we should listen to the lungs first and then order the chest x-ray to confirm our suspicion. Non-contrast commuted tomography of the chest revealed bilateral ground glass opacities. A ventilation perfusion scan was negative for pulmonary embolism. Interesting that they thought, if I could just digress here for a moment um, and flail around a little bit with this case, it's interesting that they um, thought she might have a PE despite the fact that she had signs of 
crackles, uh, increased interstitial markings, ground glass opacities. I guess they were just worried that she was decompensating for two reasons, maybe PE plus something else, and it is a frequently missed diagnosis. I guess the reason they did the VQ scan was because her creatinine was elevated at this time. They did not want to give her contrast. So a nasopharyngeal swab was sent for viral, viral pathogens and blood cultures. I'll keep you on the edge of your seat about that for now. So her, she got a procalcitonin, uh, and that was found to be elevated at 58 nanograms per ml. Reference levels for procalcitonin, just in case you need to review this, which I always need to review this. Uh, if the procalcitonin level is less than or equal to 0.5, sepsis is not likely. If it's 0.5 to 2, sepsis is possible. If it's greater than 2 nanograms per ml, sepsis is likely unless other causes are known. And if it's greater than or equal to 10, important systemic inflammatory response. Uh, sorry, I'm misquoting uh, my thing here, my, my protocol. Um, system SIRS, almost exclusively due to severe bacterial sepsis or septic shock. So greater than 10, bad. Um, and hers, again, to remind you, was 58. That's pretty high. <laughs> This procalcitonin level supports, okay, here's your next question, a diagnosis of lower respiratory tract infection with which of the following pathogens? A, typical bacteria, B, atypical bacteria, C, a virus, or D, fungi. And I know that any of our students that have recently been on the wards listening to this will be able to comfortably answer this question. So typical bacteria are most likely, so that was choice A. In adults hospitalized with community-acquired pneumonia, procalcitonin levels were noted by Self et al., and this is an article from Clinical Infectious Diseases 2017, by the way, if you want to look that up, to be highest in those with typical bacterial infection. Patients with viral or fungal pneumonia had lower procalcitonin elevations than those with atypical or typical bacterial infections. Patients with a procalcitonin level of 10 nanograms per ml were four times more likely to have a bacterial pathogen than those with an undetectable procalcitonin, i.e. less than 0.05 nanograms per ml. So one thing, you know, just to digress here for a moment, keep in mind that the procalcitonin is not a diagnostic of anything. It's used to sort of infer potential etiologies and such, i.e., uh, typical bacterial pathogens. The marked procalcitonin elevation in this patient exceeds the thresholds typically described, which range from 0.25 to 1 nanogram for ml, and may reflect bacterial illness or non-bacterial severe systemic inflammation. And keep that in mind. Again, it doesn't tell you that they have bacterial pneumonia. It just sort of indicates they might, but they could also have a non-bacterial severe systemic inflammatory process. So going on with the case, treatment was started with azithromycin, vancomycin, and piperacillin tazobactam to cover atypical bacterial pathogens as well as typical since she had spiked the fever after arriving to the hospital, I think is their thinking there. But her fevers continued. On hospital day five, so we're five days along here in her hospital course, the patient developed atrial fibrillation with rapid ventricular response requiring transfer to the transitional uh, ICU. Intravenous diltiazem was administered, resulting in conversion to normal sinus rhythm. Further laboratory testing indicated worsening leukocytosis with a white blood count of 18.9 and worsening renal function uh, after her initial recovery. And I don't have the value of what that worsening renal function was, but it was worse. New thrombocytopenia developed with the platelet counts falling to 109,000. Remember, it was up in the 220s when she first presented. She was now requiring oxygen by nasal cannula at 4 liters per minute to maintain adequate O2 saturations. 
So here's your next question. What is the incidence of new onset atrial fibrillation in patients with severe sepsis? Is it A, 2%, B, 5%, C, 10%, or D, 15%? So the students listening to this that I've taught the 20-80 rule, which is either say, if you don't know what it is, say 20 or say 80, uh, think back on your clinical experience in the trenches to sort of guide whether you guess 20 or 80. Here there isn't a 20 or an 80, so you're sort of out of luck. But you're going to be thinking, well, how common is it? You've probably seen a few patients, even if you were pulled from the wards after two and a half weeks, who went into rapid ventricular response with atrial, from atrial fibrillation. So actually, the answer to this question is the incidence of new onset AFib in patients with severe sepsis is 10% pretty high, right? And it probably strikes true to your recollections of how often you've seen it. Cardiac arrhythmias are common in patients with sepsis, and atrial fibrillation is the most common. Physiologic stressors with resulting autonomic surges, volume shifts, and stress hormones are all contributing factors. Uh, and, and there's a, uh, a good citation on this that you can go uh, back and read. It's in the critical care journal. I think it's around 2016. And that actually, just to give you the citation in case you are interested in that one, it's uh, Kuiper's Incidence, Risk Factors, and Outcomes of New Onset Atrial Fibrillation in Patients with Sepsis, a Systematic Review, Critical Care Medicine, uh, published in, sorry, 2014. And that's 18, parentheses 6, page 688, in case you're really curious to read that article right this second. The incidence increases with illness severity, and the incidence of new onset atrial fibrillation in patients with septic shock is estimated at, to be as high as 23%. New onset atrial fibrillation is associated with longer lengths of stay and increased risk of in-hospital death. We'll keep our fingers crossed for this woman. Um, the patient's fevers continued, and her renal function, bilirubin, and thrombocytopenia continued to worsen. The creatinine level increased to 3.36 milligrams per deciliter. Her total bilirubin rose to 22.3 milligrams per deciliter with a direct bili of 18.4 milligrams per deciliter. Her ALT rose to 192 units per liter, AST rose to 174 units per liter, and her lactate dehydrogenase was elevated at 290 units per liter. I don't have a normal there for you, but I think it's around 90 or 110 or something like that. Um, so it's elevated. Platelet count was had fallen to 49,000. Her hemoglobin uh, fell to 7.3 grams per deciliter. Her white blood count rose, however, so one thing's rising instead of falling, to 32,900. And the differential, if you're interested, was 2% myelocytes, 3% bands, 92% neutrophils, 2% lymphocytes, and 1% monocytes. Her fibrinogen was 740 milligrams per deciliter. And we'll talk about why they were interested in that value or why you should be interested in it. And her international normalized ratio, or INR, was 1. Her ferritin was a whopping 2,455 nanograms per ml. Peripheral smear reviewed by the team taking care of her showed nucleated red blood cells, leukocytosis with left shift, and thrombocytopenia. Blood, urine, and sputum culture showed no growth, and I know you've been waiting for this RVP, the respiratory viral panel, and that was also negative. By the way, this case was pre-pandemic uh, days. On hospital day seven, the patient was transferred to the intensive, as in pre, like way before um, the pandemic. So uh, good you're thinking about COVID-19, but uh, drop it off your differential at this juncture. On hospital day seven, the patient was transferred to the intensive care unit due to worsening mentation, persistent fevers, deteriorating renal function, shock, and respiratory distress requiring continuous venovenous hemofiltration, aka CVVH, pressors, and mechanical ventilation after being intubated. Uh, by the way, no rashes or lymphadenopathy were noted uh, at the time of transfer to the ICU or during her uh, deterioration. 
Progressive thrombocytopenia led to the consideration of acute disseminated intravascular coagulation, a.k.a. DIC. So which of the following laboratory profiles, this is your next question here, which of the following laboratory profiles is expected in acute DIC? Elevated fibrinogen with prolonged uh, prothrombin time, a.k.a. Uh, well, you could do an INR or a PT, and reduced platelet count. Let me say that again. Elevated fibrinogen, prolonged INR, and reduced platelet count. Choice two is reduced fibrinogen, prolonged INR, and reduced platelet count. And you get only one more choice, C, elevated fibrinogen, prolonged prothrombin time, and elevated D-dimer. So in uh, hopefully you chose the second one, reduced fibrinogen, prolonged INR, and reduced platelet count. So remember, her fibrinogen was elevated at 740. Her INR was normal, um, but her platelet count is low. So the only thing supportive of DIC there is the low platelet count. Otherwise, uh, it doesn't appear to be present. But let's talk a little bit about DIC because it's such an important thing to recognize in real time. Uh, in the clinical setting. In DIC, the normal processes of coagulation and fibrinolysis become dysregulated and abnormally activated within the vasculature. Causes include sepsis, malignancy, trauma, and obstetric complications. It is a clinical pathologic diagnosis requiring both consideration of the clinical context and interpretation of lab data. In acute DIC, <clears throat> the fibrinogen level is typically low with prolongation of the prothrombin time, uh, which you know also measured by the INR, and as well as the activated partial thromboplastin time, also known as the PTT, and uh, usually with accompanying thrombocytopenia. Thus, the patient's laboratory values are not consistent with acute DIC as she had a normal international normalized ratio and elevated fibrinogen. Nucleated red blood cells in the peripheral smear may indicate, in case you were wondering what this means, may indicate extreme stress, hemolysis, extramedullary hematopoiesis, hypoxia, or pathology that displaces normal bone marrow, also known as myelothesis. Um, that's where uh, pathology displaces normal bone marrow myelothesis, and they predict a higher risk of death. So interesting, if you see nucleated red blood cells, generally not a good thing. Um, however, it may be part of the process um, that you're seeing. So the patient became critically ill with multi-organ system failure. The negative cultures argued against active bacterial infection. Non-infectious causes were systematically considered. Acute DIC did not explain her thrombocytopenia, and with ongoing fevers and nucleated red blood cells in the periphery, the bone marrow was considered as a site of pathology. So, disorders of the myeloid system that result in activation of the inflammatory cascade include leukemia, but she's got multiple organs that are now affected with evidence of hepatic injury, elevated ferritin levels. And so is there any diagnosis that perhaps pops into your heads at this juncture? I hate to give it away, but think about it. She's got a markedly elevated ferritin. She's got two cell lines down. She's got very high substantial fevers, etc., etc. So a consideration at this point was made of one of my favorite words in medicine, although dreaded because it's a potentially a devastating diagnosis, hemophagocytic lymphohistiocytosis, hence to forward known as HLH in this uh, podcast. So which additional laboratory values should be obtained to support a diagnosis of HLH? Oh, I'll say it one more time. Hemophagocytic lymphohistiocytosis. Fasting triglycerides. Total cholesterol. Repeat procalcitonin. Or serologic testing for Epstein-Barr virus. Those choices again are A, fasting triglycerides. B, total cholesterol. C, repeat procalcitonin. Or D, serologic testing for Epstein-Barr virus. 
So HLH is a syndrome characterized by excessive immune activation. According to the 2004 Histiocyte Society guidelines, the diagnosis of HLH requires five of the following eight criteria in the absence of evidence of malignancy. So remember, absence of evidence of malignancy. So first is fever, second is splenomegaly, Third is cytopenias, uh, specifically more than bicytopenia or more. So, uh, which is, so affecting bicytopenia basically means you're affecting two cell lines, um, and that would be hemoglobin less than nine grams per deciliter, a platelet count below hundred thousand, or neutrophil count less than one. And then the next criteria. So so far we have fever, splenomegaly, uh, bicytopenia or greater. Uh, and then the fourth is fasting triglycerides greater than or equal to 265 milligrams per deciliter or, or fibrinogen less than or equal to 1.5 grams per liter or both. So the triglycerides and the fibrinogen for some reason uh, kind of tag together there. And then in the next one, the fifth one is hemophagocytosis in the bone marrow, spleen or lymph nodes. Next one, number six, is low or absent natural killer or NK cell activity. Next one is ferritin greater than or equal to 500 nanograms per ml. Remember, hers was close to 2,500. And then CD25, which is also uh, known as soluble interleukin-2 receptor or IL-2 receptor, greater than or equal to 2,400 units per ml. Alternatively, the patient should have a molecular diagnosis of HLH based on the detection of genetic mutations related to the pathogenesis of HLH. And that's actually really, really important, and we'll come to the reason for that in a moment. So further testing showed the following, if you're wondering uh, what became of all these things. So her fasting triglycerides were 316 milligrams per deciliter, with a reference range of normal being less than 150. Her CD25, which is also known as IL-2 receptor, was 2,532 units per ml. And remember, we're looking for greater than or equal to 2,400 units per ml. So hers meets that criteria. Nor, she had normal NK cell function, or uh, N killer cells. Um, she had no mutations linked to HLH detected on her genetic testing, and I won't list what all those genetic tests are. There are things like AP3B1, BLOC156, etc., etc., but they were all normal, so she didn't have evidence of uh, abnormal genetics. And in hemophagocyte hemophagocytosis um, on bone marrow biopsy uh, was uh, present consistent with HLH. So if you go back to the criteria, again, there's eight of them, uh, and this patient met six of the eight HLH diagnostic criteria, first being fever, second, bicytopenia. She had anemia and thrombocytopenia for that. She had hypertriglyceridemia, she had hemophagocytosis in her bone marrow when they did the biopsy. She had elevated ferritin to the tune of almost 2,500 and definitely greater than 500. Uh, and then she had an increased soluble CD25. So that gets her six criteria. The things she didn't have, um, and this was demonstrated on a CT scan when she first came in, was splenomegaly. And what was the other one she didn't have? Sorry. Um, 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 um. Oh, she had a normal uh, and a natural killer cell activity, so that didn't buy her the diagnosis. But the other six things were positive or present. So, in clinically deteriorating patients, treatment of HLH should not be initiated until which of the following tests is completed: demonstration of hemophagocytosis on bone marrow evaluation. That's choice A. B, molecular testing for genetic mutations, or C, neither of the above. So choice A, showing hemophagocytosis on bone marrow evaluation, B, molecular testing for genetic mutations, or C, neither of the above. Hopefully you picked neither of the above. This is a life-threatening condition with a high mortality, and treatment should not be delayed while you're putzing around with bone marrow 
uh, genetics, etc. So um, delayed treatment portends a worse prognosis. In a single center study of adult patients with HLH, 66% of patients had died after a median follow-up of 42 months. The median overall survivor of the entire cohort was 2.1 months. The HLH 2004 diagnostic criteria are largely based on pediatric data and presentations in adults may differ. Demonstration of hemophagocytosis is not required for diagnosis. And I'll say this, and they'll say this again, we'll say this again, is that it can be a very late finding in this disease or not present at all when you do the bone marrow. That's why it's one of the eight criteria and not the determining criteria. In an unstable patient in whom the clinical index of suspicion is high, referral to a hematology service and treatment should not be delayed. The diagnosis of HLH was confirmed and treatment was started with etoposide and dexamethasone according to the HLH-94 treatment protocol, which for any medical students or residents out there, I guarantee you, you will not need to have the HLH-94 treatment protocol memorized, but just be aware that etoposide and decadron are the treatments for HLH. I think this is more for the residents and fellows than it is for students. After a prolonged hospitalization of 57 days, the patient was discharged home. Over the next 10 months, she had no recurrence. So HLH, let's just talk a little bit about HLH here. It's a very interesting disease. Um, in fact, I was given a clinical problem-solving case to discuss at California Pacific Medical Center on this a year or so ago, but it was in a young woman who actually had underlying lymphoma as the etiology of her HLH. Anyway, HLH is a life-threatening clinical syndrome resulting from an excessive, uncontrolled immune response. It is characterized as primary when it is caused by genetic mutations or secondary when there are no associated genetic defects. So, you know, keep in mind the primary then are much more likely to occur in children than they are in adults. The implicated genes code proteins responsible for cytotoxic processes. When this pathway is impaired, activated macrophages engulf normal tissues and trigger severe unregulated inflammation. Primary HLH most commonly presents in children, as I just mentioned. Secondary HLH may be associated with predisposing conditions causing immune dysregulation, such as lymphoma, immunodeficiency, so think HIV patients, or autoimmune diseases. Episodes in either primary or secondary HLH may be triggered by infection, most often with Epstein-Barr virus. Data on the incidence of HLH in adults are limited, but a nationwide survey in Japan estimated an annual incidence of 1 per 800,000. So the cardinal symptoms of HLH, which I urge you to remember, uh, include prolonged fever, hepatosplenomegaly, which this patient purportedly did not have, and cytopenias. As noted, the diagnostic guidelines for HLH include at least, sorry, a list of eight clinical and laboratory criteria, five of which must be met for the diagnosis of HLH, where the patient should have genetic testing consistent with HLH. However, HLH criteria are not fulfilled in all cases, and additional manifestations commonly seen in adults are not included in the criteria, because you were probably wondering about the elevated AST, LDL, LDH, ALT, total bilirubin, and all that. But those aren't part of the criteria. They just commonly happen. Fever is noted in almost all presentations at diagnosis, while hepatosplenomegaly and cytopenias are noted in 80% of patients. And in this, she was unusual in not having hepatosplenomegaly. Ferritin is elevated in 95% of cases of secondary HLH, while low fibrinogen is less common at 40%. The incidence of skin manifestations ranges from 6 to 65%, and more than a third of patients have neurologic symptoms ranging from seizures to encephalopathy. So each of the cardinal clinical and laboratory findings is linked to the underlying pathophysiology. High levels, I, mean, I really like um, this little section here uh, to talk about because it explains why you have this diversity of abnormalities. 
So high levels of inflammatory cytokines result in fever. Splenomegaly results from the infiltration by lymphocytes and macrophages. Cytopenias are related to high levels of tumor necrosis factor alpha and interferon gamma and to hemophagocytosis. Elevated triglycerides are caused by the decreased lipoprotein lipase activity initiated by increased tumor necrosis factor alpha levels. I thought that's fascinating. This is the first time I've actually figured that out. So it's always seemed weird that they would check a triglyceride level in this horrible disease. But again, it's because the LDL uh, activity is low because of TNF alpha levels being high. Ferritin is believed to accumulate as macrophages scavenge heme. High concentrations of soluble interleukin-2 receptor are produced by activated lymphocytes. Liver function derangements are related to direct invasion of the liver and biliary tree by activated macrophages. They're scavengers. They're scavenging there, with resulting marked elevations of bilirubin and elevations in AST, ALT, and LDH. Hemophagocytosis is not required for the diagnosis of L. Uh, HLH and is neither confirms nor excludes the diagnosis. Fewer than half of patients may have hemophagocytosis evident on initial presentation. I'll read that again. Fewer than half of patients may have hemophagocytosis evident on initial presentation. Differentiating between sepsis and HLH may be difficult due to the rarity of the disease in the adult population, but if suspicion is high, the pattern of clinical findings and disease progression can be used to aid in the diagnosis of HLH. Serial markers of inflammation, ferritin, and bone marrow evaluation may also aid in the diagnosis. The death rate in adult HLH has been reported to range from 20 to 88%. Every patient with suspected HLH should be referred urgently to a hematologist as prompt initiation of treatment is important to improve survival. Remember, etoposide and dexamethasone. Treatment does not need to wait for definitive diagnosis if suspicion is high. The initial goal of treatment is to suppress the excessive life-threatening inflammatory cascade. That's what you're doing with the dexamethasone and the etoposide. Most regimens follow the HLH-94 protocol, which includes steroids and etoposide. After eight weeks, patients are either weaned off therapy or transition, transition to continuation therapy. So to summarize, the key point of this case are HLH is primarily a disease of children but can be seen in adults. Hemophagocytosis is not always evident and is not required for the diagnosis of HLH. Treatment should not be delayed for molecular diagnosis. And finally, HLH may be triggered by an illness with Epstein-Barr virus being the most common infectious agent associated with it. So keep that in mind. That's an important association as well. So I'm not going to go over all the citations that you could go read about for HLH. Perhaps you now know everything you need to know until you see your first case of HLH. And I want to thank um, the authors of Gastroenteritis Gone Rogue. This is a case that was just published in this month's Cleveland Clinic Journal of Medicine by Jason Russ and Ariba Kara, both of whom are assistant professors of clinical medicine at Indiana University School of Medicine in Indianapolis, Indiana. This section editor for this Symptoms to Diagnosis is Dr. Gregory Rutecki, who I believe is at the Cleveland Clinic in Cleveland, Ohio. Um, and this is uh, volume 87, number 3, March 2020. Hopefully I won't get in trouble with the Cleveland Clinic of Journal of Medicine for uh, using this case. but um, And I did have to make some edits in the case, no offense meant in order to uh, make it a little more presentable here as a morning report style case. I hope you learned a lot. Um, if you did not, let me know, and I will change my presentation style next time. And if you did, you can let me know as well if you feel like it. Anyway, have a great day. It's been my pleasure presenting you this morning report style case on hemophagocytic lymphohistiocytosis. Have a great day.